Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Why did we create the Organic Oasis Guidebook? And why are we creating the Organic Oasis Masterclass with the amazing Patty Armbruster? When you get membership to her fan club and a weekly Q&A, not a weekly, a monthly Q&A with her. So it's because we want to help you live in the most earth-friendly, healthiest environment you can. So it's good for you. It's good for Mother Earth. Whether you grow vegetables or not, we will help you. You know, gardening can be a lot of work, but it can also, you can live in a beautiful landscape and that will help your neighborhood or local farmer or gardener, you know, their farm produce more food because you're inviting bees into your neighborhood with a pollinator border that's so pretty and you can pick bouquets of flowers or you can just enjoy them and just it's a beautiful place by your home whether you want to grow food or vegetables that's why we call it the organic oasis and we've been build, working on building our organic oasis for well mike and i've been married 27 years so we have been working on it very 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 slowly so we know how it goes and we've struggled with water we've and then i've interviewed over 300 people on the organic gardener podcast so I just know that um, I have gone from brown thumb to green thumb. So, you know, whatever your idea of an organic oasis is, whether you want a bee sanctuary or um, an earth-friendly landscape or you want to grow more vegetables, um, I've got the experts, Mike and Patty and all the guests that I've talked to to help you succeed and be able to eat healthy food and feed your kids healthy food and you know, um, just have access, you know, uh, fruits are some of the coolest things to grow. A raspberry patch keeps producing. You can get luscious blueberries and those are the kind of things that maybe need a little watering, a little bit. They're very low maintenance. One of my amazing guests was Tara who wrote the book on growing fruit trees in the Pacific Northwest. And she talks about it because she wanted low maintenance because she was gardening at her mom's house. So all sorts of great tips for you on how to create your own earth-friendly organic oasis. And I was like, oh, she has great energy. I can't wait to talk to her. Uh, awesome. Hey, just so you know, I don't do video because it distracts me while I'm... So that's I didn't even fine. realize your video was on. It's no, nice to see a, you. I don't have my video I'll, on. If you want to see what I look like, um, I actually cut my hair. So I like this morning when I went into... I wore my hood when I went to the store this morning and they're like looking at me crazy because I'm like I actually did that stupid bangs they were driving me crazy you know anyway I'm so used to video anymore between school because I teach um Monday through Thursday uh so between staff meetings and kids and we're all in the I can like switch to I think I have like a cherry tomato as my as my okay so i'm gonna turn that off do you have any questions for me because i always tell people like if you need to let the dog out if you want to think about an answer if you want to you know come back or change something like it's super easy to edit the software the editing software is super easy to use don't hesitate to put me on hold okay um great that's great to know thank you for the flexibility and then uh let me see. What else? Do you have any questions for me? Well, you, I mean, I'd love to just get a sense of, you know, how long have you been doing the podcast? What inspired you to do it? How long have you been a gardener? You know, the usual suspects. 
All right. Well, you know, I was on the Melissa Norris show in December and I cannot believe how my numbers are still like just climbing. Like they practically doubled in January and they've just been climbing since. So there are a ton of new listeners out there, which is so exciting. And welcome to everybody from the Melissa Norris people or crowd or anybody wherever you found us all the new listeners out there it's just amazing and um so i my i call my audience green future growers because we're all dedicated to growing a greener future we we love gardeners most of my listeners are more master gardeners have very large gardens technically though my husband's the gardener at our house so he does 99% of the actual work and I'm just the organic eater. Since I have had my podcast, that being said, so I launched January 29, 2015. This is five years. You are going to be interview 318. Um, I have learned, I've gone from a brown thumb to a green thumb. I have learned a ton. I have grown my own food. I have kept food alive. Like in my classroom, I had like a little lettuce garden for my guinea pig. And I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. I was doing anything until I had like an emergency and a sub had to come in for a week, like a couple of days, but then there was a weekend. And anyway, they didn't get water and I came back and everything was dead. And I was like, wow, I really am keeping this stuff alive. And we were able to grow almost enough food to feed the guinea pig. And we had a worm bin and like, I'm pretty confident if I had to, I could feed my classroom full of kids. So this year I have 16 third graders, which I love teaching third grade. I'm like, how is it in almost 20 years? So I graduated in 2003, December, 2003. I finally am in third grade where I always thought I would be. My third grade teacher was the best. I love the curriculum we teach third graders. I love being able to teach it, but, and I'm also at a school that's like really into recycling. They have a school garden, like very community minded, um, very environmentally minded. So let's see. So my husband and I live in Northwest Montana. We have 20 acres of which um, deer and, and people ask deer is like one of the biggest challenges. So mm-hmm. he has slowly over the years built up more and more deer fence. And like his goal is to grow as much produce to supplement our produce bill. Although this year we are like, I actually am talking to the woofing people today to mm-hmm. see about getting maybe if somebody wanted to come woof, it would have to be a camper because we don't have an extra bedroom at our house or anything. But if, you know, we only need one person. If they wanted to come stay in a tent and learn from Mike and grow some food, I could feed them and um, you know, just be a few hours a day. We live in the most beautiful place. If you have to be quarantined, this is the place to be. Um, we have 14 fruit trees and then he has like what I call the mini farm. So that's a short bit about me and I will stop talking now and we are going to talk about you. Can I just introduce like this little quote from your book that I just loved? Sure. Um, it goes, it wasn't until I saw children in the in a garden holding seeds, planting them, touching the soil and smelling, harvesting and tasting food. And this says nature in parentheses that I knew they were truly perceiving their place in the natural world. And it made perfect sense. The most direct and intimate way to connect with nature is clearly to eat it. A small part of it becomes a small part of you and it fills you up a little more every time. Eventually you begin to realize that you have always been 100% nature, that you are made of the same components of all that you see in the natural world, your body made of water and carbon, same as the flower stalks, 
gardens remind us that everything is connected and that everything includes us. And I'm just going to introduce you super quick. I know listeners, and I would probably keep our pre-chat in, but anyway, it is Friday, April 24th, 2020. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. I have a guest. You've already heard a little blurb from her book. It is a book truly out of my heart. It's got the cutest little illustrations. It's called The Little Gardener. And not only that, they are giving one to a listener. And I am going to be quiet from here on out and here to dazzle you and drop golden seed after golden seed. This is a book you are going to love. Is Julie Cerny. So welcome to the show. And she's a rock star millennial. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, it's all about you from here on out. Go ahead and tell, I don't even know where you are. Are you in Oregon or somewhere near me? Like, where are you at? And tell listeners about yourself. The, I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York state. So I'm about a half oh, hour awesome. south of Albany and two hours north of New York city. So it's a beautiful place. I grew up on Long Island until I was 10. And then um, my family moved upstate, not too far from where my dad had had a little hunting cabin for many years. And um Gosh, uh, I, you know, moving at the age of 10 from, from a suburban place to a very, very rural place was, was difficult as a, a, you know, a fledgling sixth grader. Looking back on it, I'm so, so grateful that, um, that our family made that move. Um, and my dad is always- Hey, back up. I just have to ask you, because I didn't mention this. I actually grew up on Long Island, 17 oh, miles outside of New York City in Garden City, like Nassau County. Where, where in Long Island were you oh, from? Oh, man, I was in Floral Park. Oh, like practically right next door, or just practically a few right towns away. Yeah. Well, how lucky were you to get to move upstate? It, it was, you know, I loved, um, I loved the, the really close-knit community on our block in, in the suburbs, but, um, but I'm a nature girl at heart, more of a country girl you know, glad that I got to end up um, developing a stronger relationship with more rural places. Um, Me too. All right. I'll be quiet now. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, so um, even when we lived on Long Island, you know, we had a tiny postage stamp backyard and most of that, you know, probably t- actually probably like 20, 30% of that backyard we had in vegetables all along the perimeter of the yard. And um you know, I always, th- there was never any question about where food came from. That was just natural. You know, I knew we ate tomatoes and I, I could see them growing. So that connection, um, that connection was made pretty, pretty naturally. And when we, when we moved upstate, dad really expanded his garden. He put in apple trees. Um, we have, they uh, have five acres. They still live on that land. Um, a tiny little greenhouse, um, two vegetable garden patches. And yeah, that, the apple trees are my dad's kind of heart and soul. Um, and you know, growing up when I was really little, I liked helping in the garden when we lived in the city. And once I got to be a teenager, eh, I wasn't like super duper excited about it, but I still feel like that foundation, that that really gave me a foundation and a jumping off point. Um, for a connection to nature that along with like the typical rural kid stuff of building forts in the woods and playing in streams and making mud pies and things of that sort. Um, so I always had this connection to the natural world and that began to manifest as, oh, being part of an environmental club in high school and going to an environmental college, the um, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry out in Syracuse, New York. And what I started 
feeling was that education, you know, being an outdoor educator was really what that, that felt like my path. I had um, an educational fellowship my last couple years of college, got to work with kids in inner city Syracuse. Um, and I was like, this is it, you know, connecting kids to nature is what I want to do. And that manifested in a few different ways, you know, over a few different jobs of working with New York State Parks, working with the Adirondack Mountain Club, taking kids hiking, taking kids in canoes, like looking at pond water under a microscope. And what I began to feel was that nature still felt, when I'm watching these kids engage with nature, yes, like let's identify this tree or this animal track, but it didn't feel like enough. I felt like something there was this gap. Nature still felt like an other. Um, but this one, I worked at this um, outdoor education center, Taconic Outdoor Education Center, that's in Cold Spring, New York, in the southern Hudson Valley. And we have- I've been there. Yep. Oh, yeah? It's a great, it's a great spot and um, great programming. And I want to say I went there when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> Did you really? They well, they I'm pretty sure me. that's where we went. That we had, a and we did like those things where they like where you like you know do blacksmithing and all those kind of like old things. We didn't have blacksmithing, but there was a farm nearby that had more of those, um, you know, historic skill building type stuff. This was more, um, you know, we had a mammals course and an aquatics course, and we had a project adventure ropes course for team building, but we did have a lot of sixth graders come. That was kind of the golden, the golden age for kids participating in those programs. I think, you know, aligning with the sixth grade curriculum. Um, But when the kids were coming during maple sugaring season, it was a totally different ball game because they were tasting the sap. And that comes back to the quote that you just um, shared from the book is you know, watching kids actually eat something from nature, it really is the most intimate and personal way to engage with it. Um, It's very different. You know, I love identifying trees. I love identifying birds. I love just observing things in nature. But engaging with it is something totally different and actually putting a piece of nature into your body takes it, it's like next level, right? Nature connection and nature interpretation. Um, totally. So that was kind of this bridge into, you know, well, nature is food. So let me check out this organic farming thing. I volunteered on a farm in the Catskills just for a weekend and I was sold. Um, and I moved out to Colorado to intern on a farm, Tompton farm. And that was part educational, part production farm and part, um, kind of interest to sustainable living, living off grid at 9,000 feet in elevation and really like making the land, like working with the land and allowing it to be part of our lives. Um, And that was a big shift, like watching where all of my food came from. Um, I also took a course in, um, with the Audubon Expedition Institute in Maine, the course in voluntary simplicity and sustainable living. That was like a three week intensive before, just before I went out to Colorado. And, uh, you know, just 
watching, you know, we took it back to basics. Like we want to make bread today. Like somebody starts grinding the wheat berries. Somebody else starts splitting the firewood to, to get the oven ready. Um, and just taking it back to basics, I felt this, this part of me come alive. That was different than the part of me that comes alive when I'm, you know, climb a mountain and get to see a pretty view or, um, you know, working with kids, uh, in the woods, you know, checking things out and flipping logs over and playing in streams. So um, that was kind of my, it came full circle back to, back to gardening. And I just think that gardening is a really accessible way for people to connect with nature in a very intimate and personal way. Well, let's talk about your book because your book lays out how to, do you want to explain like the little gardener, big gardener, and like it yeah. lays out how to, because I think that's hard for some people to know exactly how to start a garden with a kid. Yeah. So um, the book is designed uh, to be read by a big gardener, really any adult or, you know, group of parents or group of teachers and to help guide little gardeners um, to create like dreaming, creating, growing, harvesting from and learning in a garden together. So um, the book is laid out pretty chronologically in terms of um, setting intentions and really big into mindfulness and kind of laying out your dream in advance and always coming back to that dream to help guide you in where you want your garden to go. So it goes through visualizing your garden, um, connecting with the land and really just observing uh, your environment to know um, what kind of garden really is going to work here where I live. Um, and I love you start out like setting an intention for a gardening that people like inviting people into your garden or an inviting garden yeah you know the most uh the gardens that I felt most wowed by where I felt a real energy shift just walking into it it was this blend of wild and cultivated you know there were there were a lot of things growing but there were also places to sit there were defined paths and it just um it had this element of wild nature and an element of more quote unquote, like domesticated nature. And, um, I think that's so important. Like, I don't know. That's what Mike, like he has his little middle mini farm that's like dedicated for produce, but that is very different from like what I call or organic oasis where we sit and like, I get to paint and we have, you know, the kids come down and we eat down there in the summer or we like, it's just like a place to be and enjoy is very different than just a farm that produces food. And exactly. I, so I love that part about what you're talking. I feel it's total same thing that you're talking about. Exactly. And I think the more that kids feel invited into the garden, just like adults and just how you're describing the more they're going to want to be in there, the more interested they're going to be to see what's going on. And when they're a part of setting those intentions and they're part of the design and planning process and actually building the structures that are going to allow the garden to come alive, that's going to be a space that they connect to more. And something that's woven throughout the book that's really important to me is this idea of cultivating ecological literacy. So ecological literacy is this idea that natural systems support all life on this earth 
And we are a part of those systems. And it's important to understand not only that they sustain us and keep us alive, but um, how to co-create with those systems so that we can create more sustainable communities, gardens, and um, you know, ideally a more sustainable society. Um, and I think that within the context of a garden that you're so connected to and co-creating with, it's really easy to see how your actions affect your immediate environment for better or for worse. And I believe that as children witness those interactions, they'll have a better sense as they grow looking you know, beyond nature in their backyard, in their garden and understanding like, oh, you know, I can have a, an effect on the nature in my community. Um, so just, I think gardening is a lesson in so many things. Um, but I think it allows us to see what we're capable of doing with our own two hands and in particular doing with our own two hands and our minds in nature. Oh, I love that. So eloquent. And just, um, it's just like your book, like your book. It's amazing to me when I look at your book, I'm like, wow, because almost all the things you talk about are a lot of very similar things that are in our organic oasis guidebook that we've up the way you put it together differently. But like you have the diagrams for drawing for building like, um, a green bean teepee and for how to build deep beds, but you just, and the way you talk about all these things, um, it just, it just amazes me. And I just love how it came out, um, how it turned out the way it did. Uh, my off topic there. No, I, I just think, and this is just so, um, important right now. So like, as I said, I'm teaching and so we've been home teaching online for, it was just a month. We just finished our fourth week. We're going into our fifth week now coming ahead. And, you know, trying to think of different ways to engage my families other than just being like, go read this story online or go do this math packet problem. And then we go through it in a hangout or just trying like, I mean, and so I am so excited to use your book and especially we just had Earth Day. And I, I got to say, I am blessed to teach the Wonders curriculum, which does a great job. Like last week, we talked all about solar power and wind power. And those were the stories the kids were to read. But um, I just, I feel like there's so many activities in your book that I'm going to be able to send home next week to get the kids and the weather's finally like cooperating to get the kids outdoors more. There's so many cute, like cool questions in there to ask them and just um, diagrams that they can kind of fill in or I can explain them. Like, I don't know. I think it's a, you know, it's a blessing and a curse to have a book come out in this, in this moment in time. And one hand, you know, I had these ideas, oh, you know, at our local garden market, I'll do a planting activity and a book signing, signing and really get to connect with kids and show them in person totally some it. of these things that are, um, um, you know, described in the book. And you know, my heart breaks a little bit not being able to do that. There will come a time. And of course, like I'm learning to adjust and I'm like, oh, you know, I guess I'll figure out Facebook live videos and try to do this and podcasts and da, 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 da. Um, but honestly, the book is about parents. It's for like parents and children. It's for families to create and grow with their garden and it's springtime and families are all stuck at home. Like what could be more perfect, you know? And we're all striving, you know, or, um, you know, pining for this connection to nature um, and kind of realizing in, uh, in an unfortunate way how connected we are to the biology of the planet. Um, 
So in that way, I think there couldn't really be a more perfect time for the book to come out. Um, and one thing I wanted to add, um, it is the this big gardener, little gardener dynamic throughout the book. You know, some people ask me, well, is it a book for kids or is it a book for grownups? And I'm like, well, it really is, it, it's for both of you. And my suggestion is that, you know, most of the text is um, designed to be read by an adult, but there are um, these sidebars that are just for little gardener that are written in very simple language that are designed, you know, they're just a pair, a short paragraph, and they're designed to bring the chapter into focus for little gardener so that they can really pick up the book and look at it themselves if they want to be more independent about it. Um, and all of the activities in the book can really be adjusted to work for little gardeners of almost any age. And, you know, my, one of my friends, um, my friend Liz has two twin five-year-olds. She sent me a picture yesterday of Nora holding the book, like sitting in a comfy chair and with the book open, she just found her there. So the five-year-old was picking up the book and I was like, yes, like what? It's so good. It's so good. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, I'm, I'm hearing from adults that it's working well for them and just to know that kids are picking it up on their own to, to find their way, um, their way through it is awesome. Um, well, I think the illustrations are inviting and like, like there's like, like, I love the little challenges, like draw a garden map and that the way that you f even phrase it is like that as a map instead of like a diagram or something. And just the pictures are just like, just like we would see in our basal reader in school. Like I could see my third graders reading 90% of this and definitely those little sidebars. And I just love the way it goes through, um, you know, like you said, in chronological order, like this part and then that part. And um, what else was I going to say? I mean, journal prompts and journaling. Has uh, you have the planting calendar and yeah. I just love the illustrations of the tools. And I, I just love all, it's so me. You have no idea how the <laughs> is so me. Like, I love illustrated books like this and, and it's like workbook and, you know, draw on it or have a notebook with it. And I don't know. The layout is fantastic. Thank you. And, you know, I feel like the images, the illustrations really capture the vibe of the book, you know? Yeah. And then like, oh yeah. Like the things I love, like the Olympics, the harvesting Olympics and having a game plan for what? Oh, I thought that said having a watering game, but anyway. <laughs> um. Yes, this, I feel like it's a perfect balance between, you know, being able to, something that was really important to me was, you know, if, if there's an illustration of a seed or of a plant, I don't want it to be some nondescript plant. If it's a raspberry bush, I want to see the raspberries. I want to see the leaves that look like raspberry leaves. I want it to be um, uh, like plant physiologically correct. Um, but I also want it to feel soft and welcoming. And um, SMA, the illustrator, just nailed it. The color schemes, it's it's soft, but informative. Yeah, you're right. You guys totally nailed it. All right. Well, do you want, what do you want to talk about next? Do you want to talk more about the content in it? 
Yeah, I mean, what do you think for your listeners um, is most uh, like in alignment with what's really juicy for them? Well, to be honest, my listeners are always interested in what can help them be more productive. What can they do to have um, for their garden to thrive more? Which this is just full of like getting to know your soil and embrace your gardening space and um, the importance of observing, mapping out your space. Like I said, I love the way identifying your microclimates preparing your garden i don't know it's all gold i think thank you i think that um the most important piece of advice i've ever received in terms of that that i've used in gardening is to observe 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 um one reason why i like watering my garden by hand is because it gives me time to really stare at the plants um you know drip tape is super efficient uh, and turning on a sprinkler is, is efficient too. Um, and that certainly makes sense for large swaths of production, productive space. Um, but watering by hand is one of the ways that really helps me observe and get to know what's going on in my garden. The other thing is, um, you know, I took a permaculture design course a handful of years ago and, some of the suggestions that come through in permaculture are, you know, if you can observe your space for an entire year, like don't screw around, you know, <laughs> like really get to know that space. Um, where does the frost settle? Where does it lift first? Where do the puddles form? Um, where is it more rocky? What was happening there before? I think that sometimes we get so excited about just getting our plants into the ground that the the foundational pieces that are going to be like these trickle down things, like making sure your soil is like really good before you really start digging in. Um, or you're going to be heartbroken. Exactly. You know, if, you, if you're all excited about, you know, having carrots and potatoes um, and you realize that you have bedrock six inches down, that's going to be, or you know, or less, um, or your soil is filled with um, like slate or shale pieces. It's like, oh man, you really, I think it's worth taking the time in the beginning. Uh, I totally agree. Or maybe you put it someplace where the tree is going to grow up and shade it all of August. Exactly. Or vice versa. It's going to be somewhere it's going to burn in August. Right. Yeah. Get to know where your sun and the shadows are moving. And, and that's a very joyful and meditative process. You know, it doesn't have to be like, oh man, I have to wait a whole year to plant my garden. It's like, you know, grow your potatoes in uh, those fabric potato sacks this year while you get a better sense for what your land has to offer, you know, or, you know, have a raised bed to start with and then incorporate that into the garden later. Once you have a sense of, um, the ecology of your space. Um, I've had this, like this relationship with, you know, being efficient and being joyful in my garden. And I think this is a lot of things that gardeners come up with, um, or come up against rather is I feel like sometimes that it ends with being productive and um, and having a good time in the garden. You know, I'm not gardening 
I'm gardening for a lot of reasons, right? One is for production, one is for joy. Um, and there are many other reasons too, but something, this mantra that I try to embody when I'm in my garden is I am peacefully productive and mindfully efficient. So that I'm taking both of those worlds and meshing it into a space that I can, I can kind of, I feel good about, about both of them, right? Like I feel at peace, but, uh, but I'm getting things done and learning to find the joys of being efficient. Because for me, that took a while. I'm like, oh, if I'm being efficient, that means I have to move really fast. And, but then I'm not really connecting my garden into that like spiritual way that we sometimes, that sacred way we sometimes connect to our land. Um, but that there is a way to kind of do both. And that's one reason why I really tried to weave mindfulness in throughout the book. And I think that's one thing that listeners, like if they go through your book with their children are going to be more likely to have children who like just the, the example that you talked about, Joel, who was the straw bale gardener talking about when he was a kid, he always had to weed and weed and he hates weeding so much because that was what he was forced to do as a kid was you're talking about all the joys kids can get out of the garden and out of being there and creating a space that's both, you know, going to be nutritious and where they're going to want to, you know, eat the food that they are growing themselves, but also it's a place that they are going to enjoy and look back on with fond memories. Yeah. And I really want to, um, but this is kind of what I said before about ecological literacy, but having you and your kids know that being in your garden, you are out in nature you know, you are just like you said, the coming back to that. I'm so glad you decided to share that one quote in the beginning of our conversation, because what my, my main goal for the book is using gardening as a tool to understand that we're part of nature and we have the ability to co-create, co-create with it in a really positive way, um, in a way that makes us healthier, makes us feel um, good and more connected to our families and our communities. And this is like such an important time for that because I don't know what it's like in upstate New York, but in redneck Montana, the majority of people that I see during my day don't want to wear a mask, want, don't believe in the, some people, I mean, certainly stores are doing a good job, but you definitely you know, and, and what I've been saying, and people are posting on Facebook, I can't believe these people are gathering here. I can't believe these people are doing this. And I just feel like what the people who are against, like, feel like their freedoms are being encroached on, we need to reach out to them personally, like mm-hmm. not through email, not through memes, like calls. If you know somebody personally who's doing this and say, Hey, the Red Cross needs help. Hey, these people need help with the food delivery thing. You know, these people could use a garden. Like, I would love to see um, every gardener out there who's willing to double their production by, like, having an extra deep bed. Like, let's get these people to go build a deep bed. That's something you can probably do on your own. Or if you're not worried about it, you can go do in somebody's garden. And let's try to, like, Mike, we we hired somebody with my stimulus check. I'm going to pay somebody to help Mike so he can grow exponentially this year. Because we are very concerned that come fall, there are going to be food shortages. There are going to be people, there's unemployment is still 
you know, people are going to need food and this is the year. And so I feel like in your community, there is a need, you know, the Red Cross desperately needs people to just stand at the door and take people's temperature. They need blood really bad. They told me at the beginning of the year, most of our volunteers are elderly. So we've lost all of 90% of our volunteers. They desperately need help. Um, There's places that people can volunteer in their community and teaching people expanding gardens. Like I just, I just feel like what those people need is to, personally get involved and feel like they are needed to help and then they are more likely going to understand it's just not touching them close enough for them to and I could be wrong but I always look at the best in people the other thing I really wanted to ask you about like in the beginning was you talked about some agriculture club in high school because I am often baffled like if I had any idea I think that there was such a thing as an environmental lawyer when I was in high school to me like Kramer versus Kramer had just come out and when you said lawyer I thought divorce court like that was my relationship with a lawyer it is very hard for my mom was always like you should be a lawyer but nobody ever told me I could be like I didn't know about that and I'm just so curious and we were like you know I graduated oh wait you were born in 82 and I graduated in 85. Yeah. So maybe it was a different thing, but tell me about your agricultural club that you belong to. Cause maybe there's a listener out there that's going to be like, Hey, I'm going to start an agriculture club in my high school or in my community. And you might not be able to garden right now together, but you know, sorry, I no, don't be sorry. Um, so the club I was in in high school was called Envirothon and it was actually, it was not agriculture at all. There are, I mean, there is 4-H. Um, you know, I wasn't plugged into agriculture so much when I was in high school, but I was plugged into that um, more like the outdoor educator, nature interpretation, um, you know, identifying trees, like te- doing soil tests, things like that. Um, just understanding what kind of local wildlife there was, um, tracking and things. And um, Envirothon is a national, I believe, you know, I haven't looked it up in a while. Um, I believe it's still going on. Um, and that's a national club. Um, I don't think it's by any means in every high school. Um, but there were like statewide competitions, countywide, statewide, and, um, and national competitions where, um, groups of high schoolers gather and basically take this like test on nature to see how well you know it. Um, And usually it's like a team of four or five students that work together to like do problem solving. And, um, you know, we had to do like presentations and things like that. And that was great because I realized that there were all of these other people that cared about something similar to what I cared about and that there was enough, enough of those people to have a national a national following, you know, my, my operating system is, uh, like more introvert and less like extrovert activist kind of thing. I feel like a lot of high schoolers these days are getting plugged into the activism piece. Um, especially with Greta on the scene and, um, other, I was going to say, where do you see, um, but that club was kind of just right for me. You know, there's these small teams. We'd go out in nature together and, and we'd learn together. Um, so that certainly helped. But really, like going for walks in the woods as a kid and being in the garden as a kid were the places that, um, that made that connection to nature come alive 
for me. And I know a lot of schools now have school gardens. I think that's fantastic. Um, and then there's a lot of community gardens too. Um, so if there's not one at your school, I suggest you know, seeking out um, you know, the leaders in your community. And if there isn't a garden, maybe you want to start one. Oh yeah. That's the other place. I feel like we could double all of our community gardens. Like let's get these people that feel like they're not affected to work doing something positive. Let's expand our community gardens. Um, I did see in our town yesterday, they were redoing the rose beds. There were all sorts of volunteers from the gardenettes, weed, weedettes. I don't know who they are, uh, what they're called. Gardenettes, weedettes doing at the library. So that was great to see that yesterday. Um, but, uh, I think this is a great idea because there probably are listeners in the audience who are like, wow, there's a curriculum already. Like I get intimidated thinking about trying to like approach a school and I'm a teacher in my local community, like even in the schools I've worked in, like about approaching them about starting a garden thing. I did run a garden club one year at a school, but that was like something that was already in place. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I, so I think like knowing that there could be a club scene. And for me, like, that's one thing, like, I would rather go walk in the woods, truth be told, than work in the garden. Like mm -hmm. when I have some time off for me, I need that therapeutic. I need like that more exercise, take my dogs out to the woods. Whereas, you know, 20 minutes in the garden, like even the other day, trying to help Mike do the potatoes. I ran the bar broad fork for 20 minutes and I was like, all right, I'm done. Whereas he'll be out there for like eight hours. Doing it. <laughs> so, um, but I do love being in gardens. I love, you know, helping out little bits here and there. I love having a garden. I love to paint in the garden. I love to share the garden with my students. I have yet to meet students and I have taught 700 kids now in 15 different schools and five wow. districts and not met kids who don't love that snack that comes in the afternoon, the fresh carrot sticks, the fresh celery, the fresh, you know, when we get cherry tomatoes go like crazy grapes um cucumbers like they are always like can i have another one like none of it goes to it maybe you maybe get one kid out of 20 or two kids out of you know 18 whatever that don't and the other kids are going to scarf it up anyway like anybody who says kids won't eat fresh vegetables uh, -uh that is i i just don't believe it like if you if you bring it to them they won't enjoy it um what was I going to say? Um, I think, you know, going back to what you said about um, kind of getting, you know, inspiring folks that are feeling stuck and whether they're out, you know, protesting or whatever isn't really in align alignment for them right now is like now is the time we all need to be helpful humans and we all need to plug into whatever our skill set is and figure out how we can offer that in a way that feels, you know, within your realm of comfort in a way that feels safe to you in this crazy time. Um, for me, once the lockdown in New York started here, I was feeling really kind of despondent to start. And I was like, wait a minute, dude, you know how to grow food. Like let's, adjust from this more panicky feeling to this more purposeful feeling. I and mean, I forget where I heard that there was some, um, some video online, you know, that that's encouraging people to shift from panic to purpose. Um, and I think that's one of the best pieces of advice that have come out um, since things started getting crazy. 
I like that. From panic to purpose. Before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links. This is Robin Kelson from the Good Seed Company. We sell heirloom seeds for common use. We offer vegetable, herb, flower seeds um, locally adapted for our area and uh, all open pollinated and heirloom, a lot of them organic or ecologically farmed. We also sell seed collections to help you, uh, to help new gardeners be successful in their growing. We sell flower collections that are good for pollinators. We sell medicinal herbs and culinary herbs, all sorts, all sorts of seeds that would be um, of interest to new and experienced gardeners. www.goodseedco.net This is Sarah Harding from Coconut at Sea Soap Company. I was inspired to start making plastic-free shampoo bars on a family boat trip to Indonesia. I was in heaven. But seeing avoidable plastic polluting the rivers, beaches, and oceans of our planet broke my heart. So I came home and started making shampoo bars. My Mother Nature's shampoo bar is a plastic-free alternative to bottled shampoo. Just like growing a garden and wearing natural fiber clothes, Shampoo bars are an example of old-fashioned choices that make good sense today. To read more about my climate story, visit coconutatsea.com. There, you can also shop for our soaps and shampoo bars made with organic ingredients. We help folks get clean without mucking up the planet. Coconutatsea.com. And now, let's get to the root of things. At the end of, or like kind of the middle of the end of my show, whatever, like if it was like a lightning round, I asked like some quicker questions. Like, do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Is there something you got to force yourself to go out there and do? I do not like dealing with pests. (laughs) I do not. And it's something I've avoided learning a whole lot about as a way to kind of procrastinate uh, on dealing with it. Um, I'd much rather focus my energy um, on growing plants that are healthy and hopefully more resistant to any insect damage and having healthy soil than having to deal with the consequences of insects down the line. I feel like sometimes that philosophy works and sometimes it doesn't, but um, I still haven't really diced out how I feel about, you know, I don't really want to squish like cucumber beetles. Um, but I really also don't want them to eat my cucumbers. So, you know, um, having that, uh, having those two things kind of butting heads is something I, I try to avoid thinking about. That's my least favorite thing. <laughs> That's so funny. So this morning we had to run my car into town to get an oil change. And on the way back, I was telling my husband, I bought some bacon for my dogs because we got this new puppy and I'm trying to train the puppy. And the other day I made turkey bacon and I have been a vegetarian pretty much for 35, 40 years, somewhere in there. There was like one year where like I got so fat. I was like, I'm going to eat chicken and turkey for a year. It didn't change my weight at all. So I quit eating them again. But still, bacon to this day just makes me want to eat it. And I cooked this turkey bacon to train my dog the other day. And I still, it was so hard for me to resist. And my (laughs) husband, I'm like, why was that? Why is that? 
I, I didn't eat it though, but you put chocolate chips in front of me or chocolate cake or potato chips or French fries. And I just can't say no, but this turkey bacon that I just was like, maybe I'm going to go back to eating turkey again. Like, I don't know why since the quarantine started, I've been thinking about probably because I'm gaining so much weight again. <laughs> and anyway, he looks at me and he's like, well, somebody has to show you what's a coffee, a cocoa, whatever, a chocolate bean, you know, looks like when it's slayed. <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh my gosh that's so hysterical anyway um yeah squishing beetles i i couldn't do that either like last summer i had a guest who she's like this is my 67 dollar a pound squash because it took me so long to squash every boar or you got to go in there and cut with a knife and pull the beetle out or whatever it is the zucchini boars she's like this is because i've spent so much time and you are not the first person that has come on and talked about that is their worst but I do want to ask, like, can you go into a little more, like, because I do have these new listeners and a lot of people on my show have talked about how growing healthy plants that are resistant to pests, do you just, like, can you say anything a little more about how well, that works? My people under, don't know. Yeah. If you think about it, um, I mean, what's happening now in the world, we have this idea of um, what is immunity, really? Um you know, some of us are more susceptible uh, to getting sick than others. And that could be from factors that are within our control or maybe are not within our control. So to some degree that, you know, the genetic makeup of the plant, certain bugs are really just going to want to eat it no matter, no matter what. But my philosophy is the to do the absolute best I can to get that plant to a, a point in health that is the best it can be given given the nature that surrounds it. And everything out there is eating everything else. So it's hard to say, oh, my garden's a part of nature, but uh, I don't really want these bugs in here, you know? So um, I want my plants to have the best, I think soil is really the foundation of everything. Um, And so- Yeah, and without a doubt, healthy soil is the biggest theme on my- show yeah and you know what else if your dad has an apple orchard that's probably a big thing for him because the best way to keep your apple trees and fruit trees healthy and resistance from disease is to to have healthy soil and keep them healthy like i've had numerous guests talk about like how pruning and making sure that air flows through um will prevent more you know, will give you the most, again, back to my listeners want to know how to have the most produce. That's exactly what you're talking about. This is how they're going to get the most produce by making sure things stay healthy. Yeah. And then using methods like, um, like row cover too, you know, when I start to see my eggplants get attacked by flea beetles, actually I I've kept my eggplants covered from when they're very, very small, like just transplanted, you know, probably until they're a foot or more high just to give them that little bit. And you know, the flea beetles, they still find their way in, but it's not this entourage that is going to decimate all of the leaves of the plant. The same thing for the brassicas. Um, Row cover is one of my best friends. And you know, the really light stuff is really nice. Um, I forget what all the light percentages are, but the, you know, the very lightest blanket that you can put on it, um, 
is great. One other now, when you put that on your eggplants, you say, do you leave it on like during the day or you just put oh, it on yeah. at night or it's no, just on all the time? I leave it on almost all the time and I have it, um, you know, floating on hoops. Um, and if it's a really rainy day, sometimes I'll pull back the row cover just to let, you know, let the bed get a good soak. Um, but I'll, co- I'll cover it back up. So th- there's a lot of days where they just stay totally covered and they do all right. They really do. And I think, you know, I, I think they just look a lot happier. Um, and it's actually like one of the most, not only is it one of the most affordable um, things you can buy, but it's way durable. Like our row cover that yeah. we bought when Lisa Ziegler finally talked me into it. So let's see, maybe 2017. So it's three years old, but it's probably, I want to say sits out through the winter and it's still been good here in Montana. Like Mike, we just don't have a lot of shed space or places to keep things and things mm-hmm. like get out in the weather. And and his row cover, like it was the best investment. I think we spent, I don't know, 50 or a hundred dollars and as compared to like the tarps, like Mike's been doing the tarping thing this year. And I was like, what? $150 for a tarp from Farmer's Friend? Um, the row cover, I think, um, I mean, they're both great investments, but the row cover has been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Indis- indispensable friend in the garden. Cool. So on the flip side in our lightning round that I keep asking you to keep expanding upon, <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? What do you love them? Oh my gosh. Um, I think probably transplanting is my favorite, you know, getting seedlings out of trays and getting them in the open, in the open earth outside in the beds. Um, I don't know. I just like tucking them in. I feel like there's, it's like a culmination of, it's like a graduation ceremony almost when I'm working with really little kids. um, I like to say that when the seedlings are still in the greenhouse and they're just itty bitty, they've just sprouted that they're preschoolers. And when, you know, they're getting a little bit bigger, you know, maybe like when your brassicas are like three weeks old, um, they're more like kindergartners. And if, you know, they're getting ready to graduate to first grade and first grade is when they get transplanted outside. And I love, um, that moment, you know, you bring the trays outside for a few days, let them harden off and get used to the, the different conditions outside and then kind of tucking them in to their new home is, is one of my favorite things. Me too. Plus it's like instant garden. Yes. <laughs> yes. Your bed, your bed goes from this, like your lovely soil to, to being a home, a home to um, what's going to be your food. It's very yeah. exciting. And it's always funny. Like I usually say I don't like dirty, dirty garden jobs. I like clean garden jobs, but I do love digging new beds and creating a new bed. And like, I also, the one thing I like about weeding and it must be the teacher in me, to me, it's like, you know, clearing, wiping off the chalkboard and starting with a new chalkboard. Like when you clean out your beds from the weeds, but I don't mind weeding when it's a little bit, I don't like it when it's overwhelming and things have gotten out of hand, which I think yeah. you talked about earlier about how to keep things from getting overwhelming, which was really nice. Okay, so Julie, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Oh, I mean, uh, a little bit of what I mentioned before in terms of just observing. Um, And I think, so that's kind of the top, the top thing, really getting to know your space and 
being being watchful, being a good a witness to to how nature is helping you co-create your garden. Um, and next is mulching, mulching, mulching. <laughs> you know, I can't say enough about making sure your soil is covered with something. You know, for some people um, that is straw. For other people, it's um, you know, like side dressings of uh, compost or a mix of compost and mulch. Um, when you look at wild nature, it's co- the, the earth is covered in life, you know, or it's covered in what used to be life, like leaves that have fallen from the trees. And there's a reason because it's, it's, it is protecting the soil and allowing soil life to flourish underneath it. Um, so trying to recreate that in your garden as much as possible, you'll notice, you know, if you take one of your garden beds and um, just, you know, mulch half of it with a couple inches of, you know, fluffed up straw and don't mulch the other half and wait a few weeks and then kind of, uh, you know, pull back the mulch on one side and try to see how far you can kind of wiggle your hand down into the soil in the area that you've mulched and try the same thing with the area that you haven't mulched. All of the gardening instincts in your body will be able to feel that soil and know which one is healthier and which one plants are thriving more in. Um, And watch your plants too, like how are the plants that have mulch doing um, compared to the ones that that don't. The way I like to tuck in my garden beds each year is to put a layer of an inch or two of compost and then um, put down straw. Um, I used to like fluff up the straw more, but what I found is when those fall winds come through, it it can pick up the straw. So I lay down like flakes of straw now. Um, So it's a little bit heavier. And um, the the garden that I talk a lot about in the book is the learning garden at the Sylvia Center at Catchkey Farm, which is where I did most of my work um, gardening with kids. And the soil there was just hard clay. Like it looked like you could have built clay bricks out of it when I first got there. And after a couple years of this method of doing um, compost and straw on top, you know, getting that on in the fall, in the springtime, um, I was able to pull the straw back and stick my hand into the soil wrist deep without much effort. And my theory is there that the worms and other soil life, you know, came up from that, like the depths and started eating that compost and kind of distributing it into the, you know, the former quote unquote top couple inches of soil and just made a really nice, rich planting bed. I could transplant right into it. I could almost direct seed right into it. It was so nice. And then Um, If I was transplanting into it, I would just take that straw mulch, pull it back on top, and then I'd kind of fluff it up around the plants. Um, And I just loved watching the soil change throughout that process. Okay, well, I feel like you are just dropping golden seed after golden seed, and listeners are just loving this. But I do have a quick question. So at the beginning of my book, chapter one is called Healthy Soil, and the first page starts out with composting. And like, I pretty much am like, if you are not composting, you should be composting. You need to start right now, because I personally feel like everybody should be composting. Whether you grow a garden or not, quit throwing that stuff in the landfill. But 
lots of people have told me, I don't want to have anything to do with composting. Composting's messy. It's icky. It's yucky. It's going to bring raccoons into my garden, you know, in New York or wherever, which I feel like Mike and I live in the woods. Like if something's going to get into the compost, it would probably happen here, but maybe not. So do you have anything to say to people? Do you get questions about creating compost at all? Like I do. Yeah, compost for me, it's been, it's been a evolving story. When I was in college, we had what we called active composting, not because the compost was like actively decomposing, but we lived on the second floor of, um, of a house and we had a little backyard and the compost pile in the back was reachable by a good hand throw from the back, tiny little back porch we had on the second story. So we would throw our stuff into the compost pile. We didn't turn it. You know, the leaves would come down. I mean, basically it was just, uh, it was a pile of things that could do. That's what ours is like. Um, I've grown a lot from that time. (laughs) And, um, I think too, it depends on, you know, why you want to compost. If you are looking to divert some of your waste stream, um, away from a landfill, it's not that bad to have a pile that you don't, really pay a ton of attention to. If you really want to be cultivating your compost pile so that you get something good and rich that um, is is really workable and you can work into your soil and it's going to become part of your garden, that can take a little more time. But composting, for me, it's like the rules of composting are simple. Um, it's a balance of moisture and temperature. So if you get the temperature and moisture right, something good will be happening in there. Um, If you have a little extra energy, um, aeration, well, aeration is probably is up there too. Temperature, moisture, and aeration. And managing those three, if you just focus on managing those three things, you'll have something better than, you know, what I had in college, that the unmanaged heap. But you really want to balance dry things with wet things. So like those dry carbon-based things with the nitrogen-rich green things that tend to be a little bit wetter. Um, And if you live in an area where you feel like you might have some, you know, small to medium uh, or even large mammal pests, um, just be really careful not to be putting any dairy or meat or anything, you know, scraps from a cake or anything like that in uh in your pile um and it's good to try to not put any sick anything that looked sick in your garden plants that didn't look like they did so well just make a separate pile for for that and don't use that as something that's going to go back to your garden maybe that becomes you know a, a slow decomposing pile that you use to fill in a low spot in the lawn or something um but yeah, the basics, aeration, moisture, and temperature. More golden seeds. All right. So Julie, how about a favorite tool? If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Oh gosh, it's really hard, but I know exactly what the top two are. Um, the broad fork and and then it's a toss-up between a collinear hoe and a scuffle hoe. But I think... I think I, I think I'm gonna stick with my top being the collinear hoe. It's just so delicate, and it encourages me to 
um, get on top of the weeds when they're at that thread stage that the collinear hoe is so adept at managing. Um, and I love um, the collinear hoes that have the extra long handle so you can really stay totally upright um, and there's no bending at all. And the joy of being able to cultivate the soil and get some, get those thread-like weeds out before they become a real problem and not having to bend over to do it. Uh, that's, that's priceless to me. My husband weeds the whole mini farm with his collinear hole. He loves it too. How about, and I love, we love the broad fork. Like I can't believe I even hesitated for an instant, which I maybe hesitated for all of like three minutes. The first time I saw this broad fork on sale on Amazon for $99. And I was like, $99. Isn't that a great deal? Aren't these things usually 200 bucks? I was like, I'm just going to try it. It was the best $99 I have ever spent. And I have not been able to order another one. I haven't seen it. Like they don't carry it anymore. And now they're all like 200 bucks. But yeah, we use that broad fork all the time. That's how Mike like rototills. Like he doesn't use, he hasn't used the rototiller for the last two years. Like this year he's really got the charping down and then he just does it all by hand with the broad broad fork and his mini farm i would say is between like a quarter and a third of an acre it's a big piece of land for him to be doing by himself anyway julie how about a favorite recipe what do you like to eat from the garden oh my goodness um i am super lucky to still have some um, pumpkins and squash from last year um and i've been making like a for Thanksgiving and uh, another time over the winter, I made a pumpkin coconut curry. And um, that I have some so good. friends that are uh, that are that are vegan, and um, so I just did, you know, with coconut milk, some veggie stock from um, that I made from scraps from from the farm that I keep in the freezer, and then roasting. Um, roasting a pumpkin and then mixing in, you know, curry powder, a little garlic. Um, my sister, who is a farmer also, she taught me this thing about winter squash that I, I try to tell everyone who enjoys cooking winter squash. She roasts them whole, like no more peeling. She, she just got tired of peeling winter squash. And um, so she puts the squash just in a baking tray in the oven and roasts it at like 400 or 425 for an hour and then turns off the oven and lets it sit for like three hours after that using the residual heat in the oven. And after that time, even for some of my nice size pumpkins, I'm able to stick a, you know, a metal skewer in, feel that it's soft. And then I take it out and then it's so easy to slice. You know, the number of times I feel like I'm going to slip with a chef's knife when I'm trying to cut a raw butternut squash are too many to count. And it's just, it, I, I don't do it anymore. Um, so you cut open then the soft, uh, the soft pumpkin or your butternut squash or whatever winter squash you have, and it's soft. You scoop out the seeds like you would normally do, and then you can just gently scrape out the roasted flesh with a spoon. So that's great if you want to make soups. Um, where you really want the flesh like super soft. I will never go back the other way ever. Those are awesome tips. I'm going to send you my recipe for, um, what is it? Chilean squash. I got from, um, you probably know up in Ithaca, the Moosewood kitchen. And I usually use pumpkin, but you can oh, do yes. it with, I mean, uh, it's the recipe calls for squash, but it's so good. I think you'll love it. And if you sell pumpkins and squash yet, 
Um, how about a favorite uh, podcast? Do you listen to yes. podcasts? Do you have a favorite? I do. I do. Uh, oh gosh, they're all over the place right now. Um, mm, I love the Permaculture podcast with Scott Mann. Um, he has done some. He he's out of Pennsylvania, I think. I love his guests. I love how thoughtful he is with his questions and how curious he is. Um, and I've just, I've just had great connection to some of the episodes that he's done, especially those with, um, with Ethan Hughes, who is, uh, I'm forgetting, uh, who is with the Possibility Alliance. How about an inter- How about a favorite internet resource? Like, where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Favorite internet resource, um, you know, in terms of gardening, I will generally, I, you know, I Google a lot, but I am like a book hoarder. I have so many gardening books and I am training myself to look in those books first. And my number one gardening book is the Vegetable Growers Handbook uh, by Frank Tozer. Um, I have loved it literally to pieces. Um, and for vegetable gardening, that is where I go first every time. Um, I've also seen some cool, as I've been looking for, um, you know, different blogs and different tips about gardening, I find a lot on the spruce. Um, and I'm not even sure what the, I've seen like recipes on the spruce. I've seen like home, home home-based projects, but a lot of neat, neat earthy information on the spruce. I think it's interesting that you are the first person that's mentioned them. I love that website. I don't go there that often, but I do find like occasionally I get, you know, like somebody will send me an email that says, check out this great article that was in the spruce. Yeah, they are, how would you describe it? It's not like a home and garden TV, but it kind of is with like almost a millennial kind of feel to it. It's got great, it's a, to me, it's got like, you know, kind of like your book, like those kind of, when I picture their like website in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a very interesting mix. It's hard for me to put a name on like, yeah, what, is, what is the deal with this? I don't know what the deal is, I but I too. love I what they, everything they, they write about. Okay. So is there anything else you want to talk about before I ask my final question? Like, have we forgotten anything? Are there any main points you wanted to share about your book or anything? Like, do you even, I was trying to find a website. Do you just have Facebook in your book or is there a website that I missed? Yeah, this is like my first, uh, this is like my first rodeo, to be honest. I am working on getting a website um, up and running. It's also, you know, the beginning of the growing season. So, you know, in, in my heart and mind, I was like, yes, I'll do that over the winter before the book comes out. And then, eh, you know, it's not so much. Um, and now this season's in full swing. So I'm going to try to find time to do that. Um, that's okay. So, Facebook makes a great platform. Um, do you have an Instagram feed too, maybe between those two? You know, I have mixed feelings. I, before the book came out, I was really setting some intentions for myself to pull away from social media. And when you have a book, honestly, you just can't do that. Or you have to come up with a very mindful management style so that you don't let it 
get to you, how much screen time you're spending. So I'm working on figuring that out. So right now I just have my personal Facebook page. I'm going to be making one for the book. Um, I haven't used Instagram, but everyone has told me, come on, Julie, you got to finally, you got to get, get going. So I've gotten a few like kicks in the pants to get, to get moving on that. Um, right now I have an author page on Amazon, um, that has a link to the book. Um, so if you go to Amazon and just look for the little gardener, uh, by Julie Cerny, you'll find that in my author page, which has a little bit more about me. Um, I love directing folks to uh, buy the book in other places. You know, ideally, I'd suggest, oh, go to your local bookstore and see if you can order it. Um, some local bookstores are doing curbside pickups. So um, if you can support your, support your local bookstore, try to do that. And then there's Bookshop, um, which is connected to independent bookstores as well. Um, and I think the last thing that I'd love to leave the listeners with is, you know, working with kids is this, it's unpredictable, right? I, I like to say that the two most unpredictable things that I've noticed in my life are nature and kids. And gardening with kids is mushing both of those things together and kind of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Um, be gentle with yourself as you are, you know, becoming little gardener's guide in the garden. Um, embrace uncertainty is probably the biggest piece of advice I can give as you go through the journey of building a garden together as a family. You know, um, you might, you know, run back to the house to get scissors to cut the twine with and your little one has scattered seeds all over the garden. You know, so your plans to have a little plot of lettuce and succession plant literally is, is blown to the wind. Um, let it be, you know, let it be, see how much of the lettuce actually sprouts. Did it sprout in the paths? Did it sprout in the beds? And let that be a learning experience. Um, embrace uncertainty. I'll leave it, leave it with that. I love that. And that is so true. And I'm kind of glad you said that because as I watch um, Mike working with this new person out here, who just start like this is their second day. And then as we're looking into getting a woofer, I'm going to keep that in my head over and over because, you know, I'm used to that in the classroom, but it's going to be a little different if we have people here at our place. Um, all right. Well, here's my final question. And it's kind of a doozy, but mm -hmm. I know you are going to have an awesome answer. So Julie, if there's one change you would like to create to see a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about? a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either in your local area, nationally, or on a global scale? For me, it's 100% eco-literacy. And any organization that is working to, like, cultivate conscious connections to nature, especially with kids, I think is doing, you know, the most important and the most sacred work on the planet right now. So I love the Center for Eco-Literacy. Um, I love like permaculture as a guiding philosophy toward creating those spaces that are a blend of wild and cultivated and are, yeah, wild and cultivated. And I think that helping kids 
feel like they are a part of nature is, is the project. We need to understand where our resources are coming from. We need to understand how natural systems work, because if we don't, I mean, how, how are we going to be able to ensure that those resources are there, not only for us, but for all the wonderful parts of nature that aren't us? Um, and yeah, I think the, the greatest joys in my life have been when I've been um, working the land that feeds me. And I wish that, I wish that everyone could feel that kind of, that kind of joy. Um, yeah. Does that, does that, that answer was the question eloquent. for you? Okay. So listeners can connect with you on <laughs> Facebook. Oh yeah. I was going to give you a amazing resource. So it's kind of a twofold resource source. So there's this girl, Please. Angie Gensler, who came up with this thing called the social media calendar. So it's a calendar that tells you things to post 365 days of the year. And she, not only does she have that, but you can get like quotes. She's got like photographs for like every holiday. Like it's like a template. So you can easily change the photograph or you can change the quote, or you can use one of her quotes. Like it is amazing. And it's like $45, I think. And it lays you out for the whole year. And then if you mix that's that with this amazing. other thing that's called Meet Edgar, which I cannot believe I waited all this time. It's only $20 a month for their basic package, but it will post for you. And one of my big hesitations was they can't post to Instagram, but they do give you this little thing that says, hey, here's your Instagram post is scheduled. We've copied and pasted everything. Here's the photo and you like click to open Instagram through their link. So you manually have to do it at the time. Um, but it is a me, like I, mm -hmm. it's just been helping me figure out how to do it. Having those templates, like I've always wanted to, and I just haven't had the time. I know how you, and like, you probably don't want to do this now. Like I bought it last April and only instituted it in like January and I'm still struck. And first I used her pictures, but then after I got used to using her pictures, it's been really easy for me to start placing my pictures in there and my quotes. And like, I went through, I think like 35 of her. Cause like I said, she gives you 52 pictures, I think. So one a week. And it's just, um, between those two, uh, I'm definitely seeing a huge increase in engagement in my social media. And it also gets me more focused. Whereas like, I'll just log into Facebook and I get lost, like following other people's things. Whereas here it's like, Oh, meet Edgar posted this in your Facebook group. Here's five people in your Facebook group to reply to. It keeps me more connected to them. And so the one thing I'm struggling with is like, if I take a picture of my garden today, like I used to have my problem with Instagram was it only worked for my phone and I wanted to get stuff off the computer. Now what I'm finding is I can upload the pictures from my computer to the meet Edgar thing. And I'm struggling a little more on posting them, but I guess I can still go into Instagram. Like I took pictures, like I planted kale the other day and I wanted to post that to the kale thing. And Oh, this is the other thing about meet Edgar is, is it recycles everything. And, so, and it also uploaded like all 300 episodes from my podcast blog with all the photos. It just went in and grabbed everything. And so now I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember doing interview 37 with Heather Wood. And then I'll write whatever I remember off the top of my head and put it out there. Anyway, 
I know it's new to you and it might seem overwhelming. I've been doing this for five years and I just started doing it in January. And like I said, I bought Angie's calendar last April and it even took me to January, but it's amazing. And if anybody out there listening wants to do it, there is a link on my homepage. You can click on that. will give me itty bitty teeny tiny bit of money from Angie as an affiliate. But even if you don't, I mean, she's great. And I think even if you go to, if you use the art of paid traffic, so AOTP, she gives you like 30% off which is somebody else's referral link, but that's how I got there. But anyway, we're not talking about all that. We're talking about you. So remind listeners, right now they connect with you, either go to Amazon, which listeners, when you buy her book, don't forget to leave her a five-star review and help other people find it because that's huge. And I know you are going to love this book. Um, And then we can connect with you on Facebook and then you'll be maybe getting a website and all that other stuff up there. Yeah. And when I get the website and all that good stuff up and running, I'll make sure to circle back with you, Jackie, so that, um, I can put it in the link. Yeah, that would be great. Have it. Okay. The other thing I want to do that I don't think we have said is the book is actually called the little gardener helping children connect with the natural world by Julie A. Cerny and Cerny is spelled C E R N Y. This is is great. Um, Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention is the book is also on Goodreads, if that's a website you use to find uh, new books to to read that are alignment with your interests and see what your friends are reading. Uh, There's also a space there where folks have left reviews of the book um, and a place for you to leave a review if if your listeners to read a review too, um, if they're interested in doing that. Okay, I will get on that today because I am on Goodreads. I don't go there as enough as I wish I would, but um, but it's yeah, Goodreads is a great place to get recommendations and uh, things like that if you don't know Goodreads. So thank you, Julie, for being so eloquent. This interview probably went way longer than you thought. Oh, I do. Right. Um, my show goes out on Progressive Radio Network on Monday nights, and so they like fifty three between fifty three and fifty eight minutes. So I do try to hit there, but we've gone way over. But that's just because you had so many awesome golden seeds and so much inspiration and just passion for the environment, and you are like my ideal avatar. Like if you, oh, the beginning of my book, there's two pages about Jenny, my avatar, and you nailed it. And so my listeners out there are loving this as much as. Um, just everything you said. So thank you so much and I'll let you go and I will send you the link as soon as it is out. All right. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you for having me here and best of luck to you and Mike with your, with your garden this year and stay safe and healthy. Okay. You too. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis guidebook available today from Amazon. It's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just, um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast? 
If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.